I want to take a moment before the show to let all of you know about a new horror anthology that I just read and really enjoyed. The book is called Shredded, and uh, that title is a double entendre because this is a collection of body horror stories about sports and fitness. So double meaning of shredded there. Now, the stories are awesome. Uh, These include pieces about a murdery yoga cult, also why you really shouldn't use performance-enhancing drugs, and also why you definitely should wear a helmet. I really hope that someday we'll have an opportunity to cover at least one of the stories in Shredded over on Elder Sign someday, but until then, I hope that you'll grab a copy for yourself. I've put a link in the show notes to make that easy for you, but of course you can also order the book from your local bookshop. Again, the book is called Shredded, and I hope you grab a copy today. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back with our coverage of Karen Russell's 2012 story, Reeling for the Empire. This is a two-part episode. This is the second part. And, uh, you know, traditionally, this is where we discuss this story. This story was commissioned to us by a very generous Patreon supporter, and we have loved this story so much, and hopefully our discussion will uh, dig deeper into some of the context and background ideas of the story. Uh, But what I really want to say here is thank you. I have loved reading this story, and I'm so glad to have more Karen Russell collections, uh, just personally. So thanks. Something we've not, I think, said actually about uh, these Karen Russell books, the two books that we have because of commissions from this Patreon supporter, is that they're just really nice books as physical volumes, and I just love looking over at the shelf and seeing them there. It's really nice, and we hopefully will read more stories from them in the future for the show as well. So thank you so very much for commissioning uh, not just these episodes on Reeling for the Empire, but Black Corfu and all the episodes that you have commissioned. It's extremely generous. We really, really appreciate it. Well, let's turn now to the discussion, Brandon. Let's talk about this story. You're in charge here. What's first? Yeah, well, at the end of our recap episode, we mentioned how this story is, you know, openly or explicitly political. It's about the impacts of, you know, changing economies, the growth or uh, development of industrialization and really globalization, broadly speaking. We didn't really talk about the black ships in the last episode. That's a term that the Japanese have used um, in the past, really since the 17th century to discuss first Portuguese traders and then uh, trading ships from the West. Uh, but it really focuses, this story really focuses on, J- on Japan's tradition from the Edo period to the Meiji Empire. And so I want to read how Russell puts it, how Russell discusses this transition as context really for our whole discussion. And this is on page 33 of Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Uh, you know, this is the second story. So here we go. This is Kitsune speaking. All Japan is undergoing a transformation. We Kaiko Joko are not alone in that respect. I watched my grandfather become a sharecropper on his own property, a dependent. He was a young man when the black ships came to Edo. He grew foxtail millet and red buckwheat. Half his crop he paid in rent, then two thirds. Finally, after two bad harvests, he owed his entire yield. That year, Our capital moved in ceremonial and real procession from Kyoto to Edo, now Tokyo, the world shedding names under the carriage wheels, and the teenage emperor in his palanquin traveling over the mountains like an imperial worm. And this is a really stark picture of the transformation in Japanese society in the mid to late 19th century. And Russell is careful to keep this context foregrounded in the story. So I really think that's the best place to start with our discussion with context and background for the story that's told. And then we'll, you know, move closer in to what Russell is doing with characters and silk trade and, and things like that in general. But Russell's not only telling a story about societal changes as a result of industrialization, globalization, and a transition to a a capitalistic uh, economy. She's also telling the story about workers rising up against factory owners or, you know, other types of rebellions. And 
these ideas can really f- be found in all sorts of popularizers of the Marxist critiques of capitalism and his ideals about communism. You know, so what I'm saying is, is this is not just a, a story about something that took place specifically in Japan, but we've read these stories everywhere. So the real question I want to ask is why you think Russell chose to set this story in late 19th century Japan, rather than, say, Germany or England or the U.S. or or France or anywhere else? I love this question. This was very much on my mind as I was reading this story, because as we teased in the, the first episode, the recap episode, a lot of the 19th century, even early 20th century literature that we read for this show has as its background the transformations that are brought about by the Industrial Revolution. And we see this manifest in a lot of ways. Most of the stories that we've read where that's been the case, what's mattered about the Industrial Revolution has been the way that society has been transformed through really through rippling effects. I mean, this is at the core of the murders in the Rue Morgue, the very first story that we did on Elder Sign, but lots of other stories as well, where we see uh, people moving to cities and how that's transformative. We see uh, changes in the countryside, how that's transformative. We have seen uh, new people amassing wealth and and also then taking up new stations in life. Uh, I mean, that was even at the core of the William Hope Hodgson story about the st- statue that comes to life, right? The Kali statue <laughs> that comes to life or, you know, doesn't, uh, you know, even that really just fun kind of Scooby-Doo style adventure story relied on the transformations of the industrial revolution and the it ensuing still does. globalization. Right. Still does. Yeah. <laughs> still does. Indeed. In Scooby-Doo today, <laughs> they're looking at the downfall of industrialization. <laughs> Yet we've had very few stories that one are actually situated in an industrial workplace, like a textile mill, for example. But then, too, we've had almost none of these stories I, I, I have been set outside of the, the Western world. So I brought up that William Hope Hodgson story uh, intentionally because although it's dependent on the exploitation of India by the industrialized British Empire, the horror of that story is that bad stuff about India has come home to Britain. Uh, But it's not a story that takes place in India at all. But this story takes place in Japan as Japan is consciously industrializing on the model of Europe and uh, the United States, and maybe specifically um, on the model of the United States and and France, actually, I think were the really the sort of two big models that uh, Japan was looking at. And so it really shifts where the industrialization is happening, both in terms of, of the level at which it's happening, which is to say we're looking at workers here, but then also culturally where this is happening. And I think one of the things that this really does about shifting this to Japan in particular, you could do this in the Ottoman Empire as well, is to look at what we could think of as a sort of top-down industrialization, where a government has looked around at other parts of the world, seen that there are different means of production, different economic models, and that those different means of production and different economic models are allowing states, countries, to have cool military equipment and to build empires to exploit other people for their own ends. And that's what the Japanese government has done. They've seen that and said, great, that looks good. We want that for ourselves and do that. And so there's a self-conscious top-down industrialization that is imposed upon the country by its own government. That's a simplification, but it's a simplification that helps us highlight how what's happening in the UK, the US, Germany, France is a different process where the process comes largely from within, not directed by government at this level, often helped by government, but helped by government because of the persuasion of uh, robber barons, (laughs) the persuasion of industrialists, right? The people who are going to economically benefit the most from changes, right? Where what we actually see in the West is governments greasing the wheels of economic change, massive social change, and and so on, right, for the purpose of industrialization, where we can look and say, well, who is responsible for this radical 
transformation of our society, of the way that we live, is industrialist, is, is business people, I guess is actually really what I'm trying to say. But in Japan, that's not really who's directly to blame. It's, uh, or credit, I suppose, if that's your perspective, it's the government here. And I think that that's a really interesting shift there. And it's pretty clear that one of the central motifs of this story is thinking about who is to blame for Kitsune's situation. Kitsune herself is obsessed with thinking about that. Right. Uh, that That is a huge part of this story, is looking at the, the way the structures, the social structures, governing structures, economic structures have changed that lead people to become aware of even the types of choices that they have. Like, what is freedom if you can't actually choose to opt out of something or to not do something um, because otherwise you're going to starve, right? And so that that's a big part of this is, you know, anybody, any human being is capable of having hopes and dreams of rising socially. Um, but if a structure that you live in, a social model doesn't allow for that, if there's only one way out, it's it's a false choice. And that's what Kitsune is really struggling with, I think, is this concept of the false choice. Like, even if her father were well or not up at the mountain with her brothers where they think the, the well is going to heal him. And, and even in this part of the story, we have this sort of um, enchanted world, you know, the way industrialization is intruding upon this, these older mindsets of places of healing or Japanese culture. That even if that weren't the case, Kitsune doesn't think that her own father would have made this choice, but almost certainly he would have. He's carrying the generational debt of his father. And this is, you know, this revolutionary moment in Japan where the debts weren't canceled to start over. And even if they were, the government, the new government needs to raise money somehow since they've gotten rid of their aristocratic class. And that's by taxing land. And this causes all these sorts of problems as well. And so, a government is a thing to blame that doesn't really allow you to change anything. It doesn't really allow you to feel any sense of agency in the way you want to change. Instead, like we see in the way a lot of discourse functions in our culture today, we blame sympathizers. We blame people who are the capitalists. We blame our family members who are stuck in the system of, you know, middle-class wealth creation or something along those lines. Like, well, you know, my, my dad took an office job, but I'm not going to do that. You know, I can, there's another way out for me or all these kinds of ideas is that we can overcome this, but we often find ourselves in the same sorts of positions our, our parents were in as well. And so the kind of who you blame question gets bigger and bigger until we can blame somebody or an entity or an institution for our situation because we know by blaming them, we can't change it. But looking at Kitsune's character, she feels she could have chosen differently. She takes responsibility for this decision. And that leads to its own sort of problems, this own, this own, her own sort of disillusionment and angst about her life situation. And I'll talk about why this works by the, the, the setting in a moment. But Russell does a really good job of showing the reader that even in the situation, yes, we might end up like Dai, right? Or Day, who has decided to strike. But ultimately, the decisions, even if we're only presented with unfavorable decisions, we still have to make decisions about how our families are going to have money, how we're going to have shelter, how we're going to have food. And even if all the decisions that are presented to us are not optimal, we still have to make those decisions. And I think Russell is just doing a gorgeous job of giving us a character who's really struggling with this. And it would be too familiar, I think, to set this in England or France or the US in the 19th century, you know, give us an Upton Sinclair type of novel where all it's doing is looking at the social change that's led to these unfavorable conditions. Uh, this is a, a way of making strange, even though we're all supposed to be great global citizens who know everything about every other country and their people, <laughs> um, that this is a, 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 a tool that Russell is using of making strange things that are very familiar to us and arguments that are familiar to us. And then to also take that a step further to have the main character fully responsible for her decisions. And I just think all of those things work really well together. 
Kitsune is a really interesting and also just really excellent narrator of her own story. She's fairly well educated. She knows about the black ships and and specifically the black ships that she's referring to uh, when she's giving her family's backstory is the the Commodore Perry expedition in the the early 1850s. It's the the U.S. Navy. This is is a big diplomatic mission to Japan to get Japan to... uh, stop being isolationist, I guess, to enter sort of the global trade. And this is step one or maybe step two, I guess, really, in the move towards uh, centralized industrialization. Katsuni knows things like that. But at the same time, her perspective is small. Her perspective is is small scale. She's not really looking at the economic system of industrialization, right? When she's thinking about who is to blame for this situation, that's not the level at which she's thinking. It's there's only two options for who could be to blame for, for this, right? It's either herself or for all the other women in the mill, it is their male guardians. And that's really all she can see. It doesn't really occur to her to blame the agent. So I think, that's a guy with, you know, no morals. This is a mad scientist <laughs> guy who's going around preying on people, literally preying on people to transform them into bugs so that they'll spin silk for him so that he can get wealthy, right? Maybe you could blame him, but that's, it's just not really there for her. She doesn't think systemically about what's happened and therefore can't even think about the actual agents of the system and so on. But what I really want to think about here with how this functions, how this exploitation functions in a way that we wouldn't see in the UK or the, the US, right, if the story was set there in the 19th century, is that a big part of, in fact, perhaps even the central part of what the agent is doing as he's making his sales pitch to these families. I mean, one thing he's doing, obviously, is saying, hey, there's money, and I know you need money, but it's really important to his sales pitch that this is a patriotic endeavor, that this is a way for the women to do their patriotic duty. It's not just that it's going to help out their families uh, get out of debt or have a little extra money, which, of course, in turn will also help them enter society as wives, as, as adults. It is also their patriotic duty to help Japan become industrialized, to industrialize Japan, to help Japan create an empire. Right there in the title of the story, we are doing this so that Japan can have an empire. That's that's what this is about. And we just wouldn't get that motivation if the story were set anywhere in Europe or the United States. And Russell wrote this story in 2012, or you know that's when it was published, so possibly even a few years before that. But I found this story rather prescient in thinking about the types of conversations that we've had around the COVID pandemic and whether or not people should stay at home. I'm thinking really kind of early in the phases of that in, in the spring of 2020, with the questions about uh, lockdowns and, and travel restrictions, people working from home, should businesses just be going on hiatus and that sort of thing. And this was a part of our public discourse was the question of whether or not it is worth it to allow people to become exposed to this this virus, potentially become very ill from it, potentially die from it. Is that a sacrifice that we should be asking people to make in order to keep our economy running? This was a part of our discourse. This story is kind of prescient there. It's about that exact type of discourse. Yeah, I mean, it kind of leads to another question I wanted to ask you, which is about the fact that uh, silk manufacturing and mercantilism in particular, cotton, were major drivers of Japan's ability to even transform into a capitalist economy and a global economy. Um, You know, this this was all really based in, in their ability to export textiles where in other parts of the world there were uh, you know, a disease that killed the sil- silkworms, I think, in France. So Japan saw this as their opportunity to enter into the global market. And so what's really going on here is that these these women are, yes, they're being asked to do their patriotic duty, but this is where Japan can fill a gap in the market quickly. And so the question then becomes kind of in line of what you were just saying, Glenn, what kind of picture is Russell trying to paint about this very specific impact that the transformation of the economy and global trade to capitalism has on the people. What are the costs that they're being asked to pay in order for Japan to step through this gap in the market and fill it? 
Right. The the way that this is going to be filled, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. This is France. France was a leading producer of silk uh, in really the early modern period, I guess we could say. And then, yeah, in the 19th century, there were a series actually of, of blights of diseases that uh, killed their silkworm industry. And it did change actually the 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 silk market the the textile market in in general um france didn't particularly suffer from this or french businesses i should say that that used silk and text for textiles for clothing production and and uh, luxury uh, cloths like you know uh, curtains and that sort of thing uh because they actually just invented a fake silk that sold was cheaper to produce and sold just as well. Uh, they could sell it for the same prices and so on. So, you know, this didn't really work out in, for the people at this mill, it didn't work out for them. But I think what's happening here, but in terms of the, the, the weirdness of this, right, where does this globalized capitalist economy make room for weird stuff? Where does it make room for mad scientists to come up with new means of production and to exploit people is that the rules are constantly changing, right? In a society where where innovation, novelty, progress, change, where these are the buzzwords, where these are the values, where these are the, the things that we are attempting to do, the flip side of that is destabilization. The flip side of that is the rules changing all the time. The flip side of this is not knowing what choices you should make at age 18, 20, 25 that are going to set you up to have uh, upper middle class success when you're in your 50s or to retire you know from working at all right to think about this uh, the way that this works in our own society but this is happening here in this story as well where global finance has destabilized the Japanese agricultural economy has put these families into debt as a result of that which makes them vulnerable to this type of exploitation. It makes them welcome this type of exploitation. They're all excited about this, right? And this part of this is the sales pitch from the agent, but they are excited about what is clearly an exploitation. They've already been primed to hear the pitch from the agent. And, and, and Russell's clear about that too. There are a lot of new hopes and dreams, a lot of new possibilities that these uh, peasant families believe in that will save them from their situation um, because their situation is felt on a material level. Their crop, 100% of the crop is gone. It's got to be given to the government or whoever owns the land. And so they've become sharecroppers on on land that they thought they owned. And so the, the material discomfort that's felt by these families can be explained by this moment of transition that they expect will restabilize. But what they don't know about uh, a lot of you know second or third world countries that are supporting uh, first world countries in terms of economic production and material goods production is that that moment of transition, the longer you keep it there, the better off you are as a first world country in terms of labor and goods, the cost of that. And so they don't realize that the world is going to try to keep Japan in this position for as long as possible. And that this moment of transition that is going to lead to a reshuffling of society and new stabilities is going to last for a long time. Well, one more thing that I want to say about the role of industrialization in this story and the way that this is shaking up this society is that it commodifies people, right? It turns people into commodities rather than than people. They're not people anymore. And that is something that, you know, that's a weird thing, right? Big part of what weird fiction is about or one angle of weird fiction is to dehumanize people, right? Or to look at people who are being dehumanized or, or changed away from the human in some way, right? This is zombie stories, vampire stories, uh, lots of types of stories. And we get that going on here, both literally and metaphorically. Well, I guess it's all literally. It's, it's There's a metaphor that's been <laughs> rendered literally, I suppose, right? But that these women, they are valuable as commodities, right? They're valuable as workers who are going to 
leave their homes, go live in this mill, and spend all of their days devoted to the production of textiles. And that's a real thing that happened to people that didn't rely on them turning into silkworm monsters. But that is also what is happening here, right? This is dialed up to 11. This is the move that Russell makes here is is to say, okay, great, let's well, turn these women into indentured servants to this textile mill for five years. Their families get the money. If the women don't serve out the full five years, there's actually more money that the families then have to pay back. So it's not even just a zero, a net, you know, it's not even just a zero sum game. There it would be an actual net loss for the family. So there's this motivation here, right, where they are indentured servants to the mill, and their families are beholden to that as well. But Russell dials that up to eleven by saying. Okay, but also, what if there was something else we could do to these workers to make them even more productive? Yeah, let's do that. Let's completely dehumanize these people. We don't need these people not even to stop being free and to stop being people, but to become indentured servants, a type of servile labor. We could just make them animals. Let's just turn them into freaking silkworms. Let's do that. That's more efficient. And yeah, that's that's scary. And what really works, I think, for me about this story is that even when I have worked jobs that have not actually turned me into some kind of, you know, silkworm monster or any other kind of actual <laughs> monster, I've worked some jobs that have felt that way, right? And Russell really captures that. She really does capture that. And and this still goes on today. I mean, fast fashion is a huge culprit in industrial waste. And then also this t- exactly this type of labor situation where people who work in these factories, um, I wouldn't say it's as bad as this, uh, but people who work in these factories in India and Malaysia and the Philippines and all over the place. um, Yes, there are uh, China, there are some pushes to have rights for these workers that sometimes come from pressure from the uh, people who are buying you know, the companies that are buying the clothes and the material from these companies. But um, it's still pretty rough out there for textile workers in second and third world in developing countries. And I think, you know, this this story is also capturing a moment where I think that that was kind of a hot button topic in, in the, you know, 2010s. Um, you know, if you're interested in this, there are some documentaries you can watch. I can't remember any of their titles. But uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a crazy world we live in when we, you know, buy t-shirts that are designed to be worn or washed seven times and then they start wearing out because even clothing needs planned obsolescence planned obsolescence (laughs) these companies need to continue to move money through the system in order to be profitable so it's kind of wild but glenn you've kind of predicted my my next question here which you've answered in part uh, about how the girls in these stories actually be Become an analogy for this process of industrialization. But maybe we can uh, shift that a little bit to think about the commodity of the body here, and particularly the choice to use female bodies as the source of commodification of how they are violently uh, betrayed and tricked by the male agent, and then how their bodies literally produce the commodity. Why do you think Russell made this move? Why this choice when, you know, like I, I could say it's it's part of making strange. We typically get stories about children or men being um, uh, exploited. But why does this choice of f- exploitation with women maybe work in a different way than we see with male bodies being destroyed by industrial labor? Yeah, this is a really great question because we can have all of this material about the weird fictionness or the horror of industrialization, the transformation into animals, right? The the, the treatment of, of industrial labor as subhuman. We could have that on its own. But Russell here is also giving us something that is gendered. And there is no ignoring the fact that the subtext for what the agent does to these women in this private tea ceremony and their lives in this mill, it's it's rape. This tea ceremony is an allegory for a type of sexual assault on these women. And it subfuses everything that's happening in this story. We, right. We don't typically see in 
stories about, uh, you know, the brutalities of industrial labor, like I'm thinking of The Jungle by Upton Sinclair here or something along those lines. There's, you know, some Jack London stories about factory <laughs> labor, too. Um, you don't see this kind of callousness towards the male body where they lose a limb or something like that or fingers or they get ground up with the pig meat by accident through some mistake in the factory. We don't see the way that this uh, gendered labor is also highly sexualized, even though Russell doesn't go there explicitly with the story. It's definitely implicit in in the text. There's them being taken advantage of by their factory owner, by their labor, by the person who owns their labor. There's literally them being turned into a commodity for a, you know, what became a beauty products, you know, the resurgence of kimonos after the Japanese silk trade was a, was a big part of that. The fashion in Japan changed the ornamentation, the beauty, the decorative beauty that, you know, fashion is changes as a result of this, uh, uh, of this explosion of silk production, but the workers aren't allowed to participate in that beauty. And instead their bodies are commodified in a totally different way. And so these are easy analogs for sexual exploitation as well for prostitution. We talked about also how this relief, this, this need to work in order to get that relief is often part of what's still used in sex trafficking today. The application of drugs, um, I don't know. You even see this in like Enter the Dragon, the Bruce Lee movie, <laughs> um, where these these this sort of dynamic, the, the dependency on biological relief that's created by the uh, selling of the body, not the body itself, but the way that the bodies are controlled then and the way that the labor continues is all exploitative. And Russell does this here. In such an elegant way that it's, it just forces us to reckon not just with um, labor as exploitation, but with these cycles of exploitation that are particular to women's work in the world. Uh, the fear of sexual sexual exploitation, even at an office job, right? is something that you know we've just been exposed to you know a couple years of the of the me too movement of women telling stories about their own experiences of being exploited or ex- assaulted uh, for their bodies essentially even in what should be an environment where this type of thing should not take place and russell's just done an incredible job of presenting this to us i think not just how you know in marxian terms we're alienated from the f- products of our labor. Um, these women literally are the products of their labor. Their bodies produce the thing that's turned into a commodity. And so their bodies are commodities. And I think Russell just does this in such an amazing way. I don't really know what, what more we can say about it, but I just kind of want to sit for a moment in awe of what she's pulled off. Well, I'll, I'll circle this back to the other question you asked earlier about, hey, why tell this story in Japan, right? Why why take this theme? Why take these motifs and put them in Japan rather than the, the UK or the US where you know we, at least in the stories that we normally read here on Elder Sign when we're getting the Industrial Revolution, that's where they're set. Why make that move? Where these two things work together is that I think if you wanted to tell a story about women in uh, involved in industry and, and specifically in textile production in the Industrial Revolution in the, the UK, so say the, the 18th century, early 19th century, something like that, you, you wouldn't get this type of indentured servitude here where you've gone far away from home. If we were going to set a story in, say, Leeds, which a uh, place that I have lived in Northern England, which was a center of textile manufacture, if you were going to set this story in 18th century Leeds, for example, and want to focus on the women working in the textile mills, what we would be looking at that was radical and transformative of the society there was that what had been what's called a cottage industry, meaning an industry that's done in people's own homes, is now been moved into a, a factory setting or a mill setting here, where instead of lots of individuals working to make their own goods for sale, it's lots of people working collectively to make good goods for sale at greater volume. And the 
social effects of that, when we think about this, certainly when I talk about the Industrial Revolution in courses that I, I teach, is to think about how this transforms family life and to think about how this is moving uh, people out of the home. And of course, then there's the question of, okay, but now if both parents are working out of the home, instead of one parent working in the home, what's going on with children? Right. And so that's where you could get, you know, a weird fiction story about textile production in Leeds is to have something crazy going on with unsupervised children or something like that. Right. But Russell really wants to focus on the experience of 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 the women that is not the experience of the women through their role in their family. And I think this is a way that you can do that by situating it here in Japan. There's one more question I want to ask kind of at this level of the story, the, the women more generically in the factory and what's going on there. And that's uh, to ask about, Glenn, what you think Russell is doing by having the women and girls in the factory all reinvent their backstories once they start their transformation into the human silkworm hybrids. You know, why, why is Russell telling us as the story opens that, you know, many of these girls were the daughters of the noble family, but that's not really true. Yeah, this is a really interesting move here. It resonated with me. I don't know if it did with you, Brandon. I mentioned in the recap that this this really felt like uh, sitting around a barracks room in basic training and yeah, tweaking your your autobiography a little bit, you're sharing with your new battle buddies, right? Uh, everybody's from a, a slightly different background than they actually are. Everyone's a little bit cooler than they actually are. All of that stuff going on there, and I, you know, it's possible that Russell just has some kind of experience like that that she's tapping into here. But I do think that this works really well with the motifs of the story, right? Where each of these women has gotten into this position because actually there's something about their lives sucked. Their families needed money, not in a kind of abstract sense, but for specific things. And these women didn't have opportunities because of the lack of money that their family had opportunities uh, to create their own households, to, to be married off, to, to become full adults in their society. And so here they are, right? So something was awful. Something was bad about their previous situation. But of course, the situation they're in now is way, way, way worse, right? Because before they were poor, but not bug monsters. <laughs> now they're poor <laughs> and bug monsters and, and slaves. They're slaves who have been totally transformed from uh, being human. They've been utterly and permanently dehumanized here. And so telling these stories where you're emphasizing... Uh, really improving what your previous situation had been, I think it's a kind of coping mechanism, right? Because you would otherwise find yourself longing for a situation that also sucked. It just sucked better, sucked differently than this situation sucks. But you really do want to long for something that is actually an improvement, something that's kind of a, a perfection, I think. Yeah. Uh, one way I think this works on the genre level to set up maybe the moment that the story opens is that Russell is playing with the tropes of of classical tragedy, right? In, in a couple of different ways, not just classic tragedy, but also modern tragedy. Classical tragedy the, is an arc where a person who is in a high position is brought low. So you can think of like King Lear, right? Where he kind of switches places with the madman and his daughters dies. Tragedies, you know, classical tragedy also like a lot of people will die. It's not strictly speaking about death. It's about the high being brought low. And that has happened in Japanese culture in the recent past of this story. The, all of the noble families were kind of, I don't know, lost their nobility. That's the end of the samurai. Um, and so these these women then are talking about the tragedy of their situation on a generic level without actually saying, yeah, this is an actual tragedy. Instead, they're saying, yeah, our families were really well-placed and very high up in society, and now we're here. That's the arc of tragedy. This story doesn't follow a tragic arc, but it lets us know on a generic level exactly what... Uh, is happening, what these women are talking about without talking about in these situations. On the modern level of tragedy, tragedy is really about the, the felt sense of lost potential, right? This is 
uh, the death of a salesman, right? He had all these hopes and dreams, all these noble ideals about himself, and all of those are stripped away. And that's the other level that we see this tragic world, the tragic minds of these women or the tragedy in the minds of these women expressed is that all of their potential is also stripped away. So Russell is bringing us into this story early on in these two modes of tragedy in a way that without explicitly saying it, if we're attuned to these types of tropes in the genre, make us aware that, hey, uh, this is an utterly tragic situation and kind of sets us up to, to hope for some kind of escape, some kind of way out for these girls. And so I think on a structural and generic level, this is a brilliant move on Russell's part as well. And that is the resolution of the story. There is, in fact, it turns out, some kind of escape for them, though uh, not a return to their humanity. Right. And, and that's something we'll get into in a little bit. So we talked about the broader context of the story and why we think maybe this story is set in Japan when it is. We've talked about kind of the more broader women in the factory, but let's now move to talk about our narrator. And I'm just going to ask you a basic question here um, to get us into this section of the discussion. So let's talk about Kitsune. What are some things that really set her apart in her mind from the other women and, and girls at the factory? Well, obviously, the, the big thing is that she signed her own contract, right? That becomes really the central element of her character or the central element of her identity, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the other women who are in this exact same situation with her. But also really important to her identity here is that even though she blames herself for the immediate decision that lands her in this mill, she is hyper aware, actually, of the factors that have led to the financial ruin of her family in ways that I don't really think the other women in this mill are concerning their own families. Right. So all of that really sets Kitsune apart. She's really carrying the burden of the decision herself in a way that doesn't allow her for the easy escape of, I don't know, victimhood, I guess I'll put it. I think Russell in this story is critiquing a mindset of victimhood that, that doesn't allow people to see a way forward, a breaking of the status quo. And maybe we should talk about that a little bit. You know, Kitsune's character arc in this story is, is really a result of Kitsune's struggle with her choice that ultimately leads to her seeing a new path forward. So one, do you think that this is the case that Russell is doing something with this in the story? And how does Kitsune's original obstacle in her character, right? I made this decision, so I deserve to be here maybe more than anyone else, lead to her ultimately seeing that new way out? Yeah. I mean, this is a case of Kitsune thinking, I got myself into this mess, but then also realizing, yeah, so... I can get myself out of it then too, right? And she does, right? And and that's, I think, really the arc here. And, and it's, I don't know, it's actually kind of a, an upside down arc, I suppose. It's a ditch, <laughs> right? It's not an arch, you know, that she has to hit bottom and then come back up, right? She has to hit the bottom of a, a, a kind of self-pity where she's blaming herself for this and is finding fault with herself. But in fact, what got her here, right? What led her to sign her own contract to not bother discussing the matter with her father is the fact that she was taking charge of her own life. She was looking around at what her life could possibly be given the state of her family, the financial state of her family, the fact that her father, she uses the word ill, but you know, I think despair, right? Yeah. The, the death of his wife and this crippling debt from his father, right? That her father is not going to help her. And so she has to help herself. She does. It turns out that she's been conned by a, you know, a swindler with a sexy French mustache, but she was taking charge of her life. And that is actually still a part of her. It's the fundamental part of her. It's the fundamental component of her character in this story. And it is what gets her in this situation, but it is also what gets her out, but not just her, right? It gets everyone else out of this situation as well. So you can imagine where, you know, a story about this mill where Kitsune doesn't make this choice, but all these other women are all still there 
And they're going to still be there. They're going to keep being there because they didn't have Kitsune there to start this revolution. And so, although she herself, right, has lost her humanity, she's become this silkworm monster, she freed everyone else from this mill. Yeah, except for Day. And that's the real kind of, I don't know, rock bottom moment in the story when Kitsune decides she's not going to play this stupid game of make-believe with these women anymore, where they all have fake backgrounds and they all agree that Day is the den mother and all this other stuff. She's over it. She's done with that and challenges Day on her own ideals and beliefs, but she doesn't follow through in that moment. And that leads to the death of somebody who was we saw that in that beautiful moment in the story where Day is telling that little parable about the snow monsters to, to the two girls, somebody who's trying to make it better for everybody else, but it's not enough. And so Kitsune has to take that next step. And unfortunately, it costs the life of somebody who maybe her being there, her trying to make it better really was a kind of valve that let off the steam of despair that these women were feeling. And without that outlet, there's got to be another way. Yeah, I think ultimately, the you know the dead mother is the uh, Uncle Owen and Aunt Maru to Kitsune's uh, Luke Skywalker here. I think. <laughs> yes, if if we want to make that analogy, <laughs> I always want to make can. that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we we've talked a little bit about how this story characterizes a a certain kind of Marxist argument about seizing the means of production, and yeah, there is an element to that here in this story. And in a lot of popular discourse around Marxism, you might, you know, hear about workers' rights or something along those lines. But I don't really hear the kind of other side of that conversation, which is a robust discussion around what people actually need to flourish and how maybe in order to actually change the status quo, we pretty much all need to learn to live with less. And Industrialization and the technical revolution that we've gone through is that's the case, right? And so, what we really want to change, or what I hear a lot of people talking about on on both sides of this argument, both the capitalist argument and the uh, Marxist argument, what people really seem to want to change is who is benefiting primarily from these revolutions financially. Not that the whole system like might actually need to be overhauled to some degree, and I'm not saying we need to return to like agrarianism or something <laughs> like that, but that it's our desire, our want for stuff that is creating the demand that it doesn't really matter who benefits necessarily from it financially. The problem is that we're just saying we don't need to change the status quo. We need to change who's getting paid. And Russell's character in this story significantly shift the status quo for the for themselves. You know, even though that eventually we know in the next like 50 years, silk factories are going to go out of business, but that this isn't the only silk factory either. So let's just kind of hone in on some of the world building stuff. And then we'll zoom out to some of the status quo conversation that I'm talking about little maybe political philosophy. I don't know. But the first question for you, Glenn, that I want to ask is, uh, hey, do you think that other factories in this world employ the same methods used in Nowhere Mill? I do think that this is not the only silk mill, the only textile mill that is transforming people into silkworm monsters in order to produce silk from them. Uh, I think the agent actually, you know, I said that in the recap that why he was gone uh, for such a long period of time was that he was recruiting more people. And that might be the case. We don't actually know. But I think that he's actually supervising several mills like this, because even though they're extremely efficient with their output, it is still only 20 women working here. And I think that this is actually a much larger enterprise than than that. So yeah, I think at least within you know the, the realm of silk production, that's true. Whether or not there are other goods being produced by transforming people into other types of of monsters that i'm i'm less sure of i guess silk is kind of an unusual product in that it is something that we get from animals that is a, a kind of renewable resource that is not a, a, a food product, right? We, we certainly use other animals f- to clothe ourselves. Is wool is the other big thing, right? We use you know, wool <laughs> from sheep, right? We just cut their hair and turn it into clothes. So yeah, maybe somewhere else there are people being turned into sheep monsters, I guess. Yeah, that would be harrowing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to read that story. <laughs> 
<laughs> there's people getting sheared. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think so, too. He's an agent, really, of the government that is interested in building out this uh, silk production because it's a kind of a gap in the market. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, let's let's continue on in, in this discussion here. And because the story is really about the, the women, what do the women in the factory hope, actually hope to achieve by rebelling in the way they do? Uh, this isn't just a, a demand for rights for more mulberry leaves or anything like that. You know, Russell explicitly draws a comparison to the Farmer's Rebellion, which is a land tax, uh, which was the result of a land tax that destroyed the ability of the farmers to own their land and crops. And they wanted to significantly change that status quo. I mean, agrarianism is kind of a hard system to break out of because like people need food and you want to have enough food for your family and then be able to sell the rest. Right. But this made even that impossible. The farmers maybe wanted to return to an older status quo, in other words. But what do the women hope to achieve? They clearly don't want just better working terms. It seems like they want to just break free. But do they want more than that? And you were framing this in terms of, you know, is this really a, a, a Marxist critique in some way, right? Are we really, is this really a critique of, of how industrialization is working? Is industrialization really creating the, the most good, the most prosperity for the most people? How equitable are the, how equitably distributed is the, the new wealth that's been generated by industrialization? Is this that type of critique or is it something else? And I do think it is actually something else because I think otherwise it would be about profit sharing for the, the mill or, you know, just working fewer hours, getting some vacation time. But of course, those are things that are impossible for these women. It's something very important about the the physiology that we learn about them up front, right at the very beginning, is that they have to spin every day. They have to get the silk out every day. It takes 12 hours. There's nothing that can be done about that. They can't get a reduced workday. They can't get days off. They can never leave this machine again. So that's just not even something that's possible for them. It's you know possible they could have negotiated for better pay or something like that, though I would argue that that would be something they could never check on. They don't get pay. They have nothing they can use pay for. The pay is supposed to be going to their families, but they would have no means of knowing that their families back home are now getting more money because they've successfully gone on strike or anything like that. None of those things are possible for them, but it's also clearly just not what they want. What they want is simply to not be here. They're trapped, they're imprisoned, they're enslaved. And what they want is the opposite of that. They just want to get out. They also, I think, want this pain that they have, this discomfort from the silk growing in them to stop as well. And so they're actually going to put the silk to its to use in its actual intended purpose. But yeah, I think just to get back to the, the heart of your question there, Brandon, this is a story about industrial workers saying, you know, this whole system is dumb and we're just done with it. We're going to kill our manager and get out of here. Yeah, we don't need this stuff, right? Like nobody needs this stuff. Not really. And so what What are we even doing this for? Uh, that's the kind of real question that's being asked. You know, the women, there's literally no existing system for them in which they can flourish. And so the whole system needs to change. There's no amount of retaining uh, of holding on to the status quo that is going to improve their lives. And so they just need to be done with it. They need to find a wholly new way forward and an imaginative way forward. And they do. They transform, literally. There is nothing from the before that is going to impact their after, really. And so this story really ends at the beginning of another story. The women have transformed and they won't have to produce silk anymore and the nowhere mill factory will be shut down. But Russell's ending has me really questioning whether that is actually enough. Like, what happens next? What happens the day after the revolution? You know, we only have to watch Godzilla versus Mothra <laughs> to get a sense of the anxieties that the 
you know, Japanese popular culture has <laughs> towards giant moths. So <laughs> I guess I'm really asking, is the end of this story really victorious? Or do we just like seeing corruption brought down to the point where we've stopped asking what it's being replaced with? Yeah, is, is Mothra a good guy? Are we rooting for I, Mothra? You know, I, the, the lord of those movies is something I've never gotten into. Uh, but I know that Godzilla is probably the good guy. Okay. After when the other giant monsters invade, because he's like the devil, you know. Yeah, I, I've seen Godzilla versus Mothra, like the, the very first one of those uh, when I was a kid. But I just I don't think I really knew at the time who I was supposed to be rooting for. I was building something <laughs> with Legos. That's really what my attention was on. I was just noise in the background. But yeah, so I don't know. I, I was hoping that it meant that they were going to be heroes. Right. But maybe not. Maybe they are going to go out into society and be villains. But yeah, they're they're human sized moths. Now, there's there's 20 of them. I, I guess I don't really know what moths do anyway. I mean, like like the silkworm moths, they, I guess, do what all adult animals do, which is uh, continue to eat food and then reproduce. But in this case, I don't know that there are males. In fact, I think we know definitely there are not human males who've been transformed into human-sized moths like this so that's out for them and where can they go can they go back home are, are they as moths even going to be able to speak how moth-like are they actually going to be i guess is kind of the question i mean certainly they were still quite human in their silkworm capacity they were human who just produced silk so are these going to be actually i guess you know human-sized moths as i've just sort of defaulted to thinking about, or are they going to retain a lot of their human properties? You know, we just, we just don't know. I guess we also don't know how much they're going to look like Jeff Goldblum either, you know, but yeah, <laughs> yeah that's always everyone's fear. I, we're talking late. We're talking third act of the fly, not first act, right, because right. <laughs> I'd give anything to look like uh, Jeff Goldblum in the first act oh, yeah. of that movie. Yeah, that's a handsome <laughs> good looking dude. <laughs> yeah. But the, the real question I want to ask about the resolution of this story then is, you know, like I said before is, is this a victory? Does it work for us on the level of victory because we like seeing corruption defeated? But in terms of a revolution, we have to think about what that's being replaced with. I'm not saying that the concern about what we're, we're replacing the downfall of corruption with should stop us from taking moral action or ethical action in the world. But why is it that we stop these stories at this moment where we don't ask the question of what is taking the place of what's been corrupted, what the corrupted institute is. I guess we've gotten into the point of our episode here where we're just invoking movies we've seen. So yeah, I will continue it. that and say, <laughs> yeah, this is this is like uh, the first act of American Beauty where we're like, yeah, good for you, Kevin Spacey, for quitting your crappy job. But, um, you know, it's then, then what happens next is actually nothing good, right? And we're really excited for these women because they have gotten out of this situation. But I just don't know that they have anything good to go to or to return to. I, I don't know if that's what's going to come next. But nonetheless, even though this is probably not actually a happy ending for this story, it's a really satisfying ending. I mean, it satisfies every daydream I've had about quitting a job I don't like. A job where you know I hated my boss, felt like I was being horribly exploited, the working conditions were terrible. Right? It satisfies that kind of you know fantasy that we have, the daydream that we we have about that, even if it's not actually going to be a happy ending. Right, and and I guess the point I'm trying to make is I think even Russell is a little bit aware of this because these are this is a monster story, right? And that. Yeah, this is a, maybe a great way to, to leave a job and leave a factory in ruins or something like that. Uh, but the, the what comes next is actually a pretty important question. And if we're def defined entirely by negative experiences or like the resentment of the condition, we're not thinking about the plan to make something better. And that's kind of even threaded through the story with the color that Kitsune's silk changes to black, just this, this, this representation of just, just, uh, I don't know, grief and rage, just these, what we'd call like negative emotions, even though they have like a positive effect here in the, in that they accomplish something in the story. There's no real plan for what's next. The thing is, things are so bad that we just can't do it anymore. And this is actually kind of a way I think that uh, a lot of people uh, think about exploitation is 
if we keep people thinking about just how bad things are, they can't actually plan to replace us with something better. And, uh, you know, I think Russell's just kind of playing with these conflicts in the discourse between, you know, capitalism versus communism and where do the profits go and all this stuff and kind of just cutting through all those questions and saying, yeah, but what are you going to do next? You, you're a giant moth. You've spent the last 15 years of your lives um, building widgets. Who has given you the time to plan to, to build something better? Who's invited you into that conversation? Are we building something together or are we just celebrating the tearing down of something that's rotten? But I think in any case, whatever the outcome might be, and there could be some pleasant, some good outcomes here where these women are able to make their way into the mountains and set up a community that's them and just live, you know, whatever that means for them, right? Whatever food it is that they're going to be eating now, whatever their lifespans are going to be that go form, or not even form, but just continue their own community out in the, the world free, right? That, that, that is a real good outcome there. But I think that even if what happens is that this turns into another type of monster story in which it's the story about uh, humans seeing them, being terrified of them, horrified by them, and killing them out of that. I think that still might be a preferable outcome for them than this life of slavery. Yeah. In any event, the government's sanctioning all of it. So no one really right. wins, right? <laughs> I, I have only one uh, really craft question about this story as we move into the final bit of our discussion here. Uh, you know, I think we can both agree that this story is just absolutely beautifully written. The voice is pitch perfect. The construction and structure of the story are all amazing and thoughtful. But there's one question I have, which is this story could have been told, I think, just as effectively in a third-person omniscient or a close third-person perspective that would have maybe given us a, a broader cultural picture that maybe colored in some of the lines of Japanese history that we didn't know, even though Russell's contextualization of this stuff caused, even when I was looking up some of these uh, bits of Japanese history, to be like, oh yeah, I just got that from the context. I mean, it's a real master class of contextual writing as well. But why do you think Russell wanted to tell us Kitsune's point of view in this story? When I think the story of a factory uprising, many that we're familiar with, are very satisfying from a collective perspective. I think this works in two ways, though maybe with the same the same outcome. One is this is a story about becoming a, a, a monster of sorts, right? being dehumanized and being exploited, uh, being economically exploited, and then weird fictionally, mad scientistically uh, transformed or dehumanized, and having a having the interior voice of a first person narrator. I think really helps us put ourselves in that situation, right? Helps us sympathize with this situation. The other thing that it does is it allows Russell to show us the exploitation in this personal way without giving us the third person perspective of it that would, I think just by the nature of writing a third person story, become a kind of systemic critique. And that's not what Russell is after here, right? That would be, I think, more telling than Russell wants to do. Russell wants to show. And so this first person voice, I think, really does that. I, I agree 100%. I think the core benefit of making this decision to tell the story in this way is that it doesn't let us simply immortalize about a victim status or hero status or the, the victorious feeling of an uprising or anything like that. We are that's withheld from us. And what we get instead is a complicated character portrait that are about these things. And that allows us into the story in a way that I think really reminds us that even people who are in these types of situations have conflicted feelings about the situation. And that might be the result of cultural indoctrination or uh, hopes and dreams or systemic issues that they're dealing with. But to give us this fully subjective perspective deepens our appreciation for the types of struggles that are deeply human that could be felt in these moments of, of exploitation. Uh, and I really love that about this story. 
Same here, though. I would uh, I would watch the adaptation, the TV adaptation of this that's kind of modeled on uh, Orange is the New Black. <laughs> I think that would be, <laughs> it would have to be rotoscoped. That's all I'll say. Well, I think that is going to do it for this episode. Uh, once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. Thanks for coming along with us on this journey of Karen Russell's great story, Reeling for the Empire. And I'm Glenn McDormand. As always, you can find us and all our other podcasts and creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Yeah, let me say thank you once again for this commission. This story was so awesome. I had a real blast covering this story, even as, as depressing as it is. All the stories that we've covered so far have been really great. It's a very generous way to support the network, and we're so grateful for it. And if other listeners would like to commission an episode of their own, we would love to do that. This really is something that's just tremendously fun for us to do. And and you can do that by contacting us via email. You can message us on Twitter, Reddit. If you're a Patreon supporter, you get a discount on commissions. And Patreon is also a great way to message us as well. So if you've got a favorite story that we haven't talked about yet, you're worried we never will, we hope you'll write us and get us going on that. Next time, we're going to be back with an episode about something. This is uh, one of these commissioned episodes that we've done probably about a year before we're going to air it on the, the main show. So our Patreon supporters simply have not yet voted on what is going to come next. But if you are someone who likes to read along with us, you can always find out what's next by checking out the Elder Sign page at claytemplemedia.com. And until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>